I was walking down Queen Street in Toronto, and I heard a crowd shouting, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And it sounded boisterous and really loud. I wonder what was going on. This is about 20 years ago. And I was like, what's happening? Like, are, are, there, are there Christians doing this? Is, this? is this something mocking faith? I just, I don't know. I'm a little suspicious of what might be happening on Queen Street, Queen Street West in broad daylight. And so the procession got closer and it turns out, if you ever seen the clothing brand that starts with the letter G, G sus, I think they went bankrupt a little while ago. That was their that was their launch or the launch of a new season was they had hired a bunch of people to walk around saying G sus saves as a piece of promo. And I remember hearing it, and before I knew what was going on, there was just this conflict, right? Of like, is this something faith-based? If it is, is this a good way to be doing things? Should I be excited? Or is, is this something else? Just, man, like, I love God being praised, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know what's happening. And that conflict and that situation is a story I thought of um, when we got the content to preach this Mission of Life series. I'm going to be doing something that I actually, I think I've only done once before, but I'm going to do a whole series of it here. Is I'm going to be preaching somebody else's sermons with credit and they've planned for people to do it we have a course that they've given us access to and we get the sermon outlines and we get to preach them but I think I've only done that once before in my home church when they were going through a series and they asked us to go through these outlines they had ready um, but that story is mine <laughs> and that's the one that I thought of when uh, it came time to preach this sermon so you, we're doing a series called a missional life what it means to be on God's mission in all of our lives through the world. What is the mission of God? What has God called us to do? And when we think of evangelism and proclaiming the message of Jesus, how do we do that in our culture? How do we do that without compromising the message that God's given us, the gospel of Jesus Christ, without watering down the need for people to make a choice and believe in Jesus and have that moment of faith and that moment of conversion, but also to not do it in ways that aren't effective or make things worse or cause more angst and conflict and push people farther from God. And I don't know if maybe you've had a moment where you thought somebody might be trying to talk about Jesus, or maybe somebody even came to you and tried to talk about Jesus. And maybe it was very natural. Maybe it was a friend who didn't know if you were a Christian yet. Maybe it was somebody walking up to you out of the blue. I've had moments like that too. Um, but we have this desire, right, that we want to share the gospel of Jesus. And I'm going to start with their content here. They start with Romans 10, 9 to 15. This is a verse that will be on screen. We're going to be in Romans 10 for the beginning of the sermon. At the end, we're going to refer to John chapter 5. Those are our two main passages today. So Romans 10 says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's the gospel, right? For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. A scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
So this sermon series comes from Church of the, Church of the City, New York. It comes from a guy named John Tyson and Tyler Pree. We've been going through some of these sessions uh, with our Young Adults Life group. And we're going to be doing one session from this series every Sunday. And then follow it up with our life groups to watch the actual videos. So if you're going to watch the actual video of this, you're going to find uh, quite a bit of overlap again. That these are the basis of how we're preaching these things. Um, and so here's a story that they'll tell in the video. The pastor, uh, John Tyson, he was at dinner with his wife. And it was, you know, a nice restaurant, a beautiful meal, great, attentive service. And at the end of the meal, the server says, hey, can I ask you a question? And she says, if you were to die tonight, and you were to stand before God, and he was to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Now, as a Christian, it's almost like, oh, I'm, I, get, I get to say this, right? So the pastor said, you know, like, well, what I would say is, Father, it's so good to see you. I am here through the substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus. His propitiation of your wrath, you've forgiven my sins. I look forward to eternity with you. And the server in response says, yeah, but how do you really know? And his wife's kind of, you know, smiling a bit. And he says, well, in Romans 8, right, the golden chain says that I have been chosen. I have been sanctified, uh, justified, sanctified. I will be saved, and I am saved. I, I know that through what Christ has done, I am saved. And she said again, the server to them, yeah, but how do you really know? At that point, they kind of just gave up that part of the conversation. He said, you know, I couldn't talk her into the fact that I, I was saved and I believed in Jesus. So, you know, we just paid the bill. We left a good tip. <laughs> and we kind of left. He says, but that was, it, it was awkward, right? Because out of nowhere, that question inserted itself into the conversation. And things were going well, and it was a good, you know, meal, good service, good food. But, but it just, it was disconnected from what was happening. It was disconnected from reality. The context wasn't appropriate. And he, said, and he said, you know, this is somebody that's had this training or this idea called conversionism, right? That if you can just get somebody to say the right thing or lead them through the right steps or go through a bit of a strategy and have them go through A and B and C, then you're going to be saving people. I think it's a little more complicated than that. And don't get me wrong, you know, it's good to share our faith, and we want to be able to talk about what we believe and tell people what Christ has done. But the idea that we go through just steps in a process and insert it into every conversation, regardless of context or relationship, it may not have been incredibly effective in the past. It may have worked sometimes, especially, you know, before, after World War II, and people were going, yeah, like, what if I died tonight? Because, you know, you, you could actually die tonight, and you were thinking about it. But in a culture where that's not on people's minds, where it's not the main question, it's not really very effective now. And so how do we actually get chances to share the gospel? David Bosch says this, mission is more and different than just recruitment to our brand of religion. It is the alerting of people to the universal reign of God through Christ. It is letting people know what God has done, that he is the eternal king, that the gospel of the good news of his reign. Leslie Newbigin says this, the Bible is covered with God's purpose of blessing for all the nations. It is concerned with the completion of God's purpose in the creation of the world. It is not, to put it crudely, concerned with just offering a way of escape for the redeemed soul out of history, but with the action of God to bring history to its true end. 
This is a compelling summary of the salvation message, he says. And I agree. And when it comes to sharing the gospel message, there's two competing realities outside of us, right? Inside of us, right? Number one, how do we tell people? How do I make people aware of the universal reign of Christ, that he is Lord God of all, that he is the king? Because we have to address this tension that if you are a Christian, if you are a new covenant person, if Christ has brought you from death to life, you have a desire that people should know this. And that's God's desire that he's put in our hearts, right? That we want to have those beautiful feet to bring the good message of Jesus. And when we read, right, in the Old Testament, what God did to bring a people to know him, when we read what God did, the miracles to deliver them and save them and form a people who knew his character, and what he did to preserve them and save them, we want our friends to know that God. And when we see Jesus and the clarity in the New Testament, our desire just increases, right? Like the message of the kingdom of God, the love for the poor that God has, the heart for justice, Jesus' willingness to confront hypocrisy. And then Jesus shows the Father's love, dies a sacrificial death on the cross, and is raised to life again and defeats death forever. Like, I want to share that with people. That's a desire that God's put in our hearts. And we're just, we're stirred up as we read about the early church and how the gospel spread in the most hostile conditions, and what God did miraculously through the early church and through different people in history, and how the gospel spread. We're like, yeah, God, like, more, Lord. I, I want this to happen now. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going on a missions trip or going to a place where God is really moving. I know when I went to Asbury last year, that's Again, my, my story, not theirs. Just having this idea that this is a place where, where God is moving. That the Holy Spirit's doing something. That the, the space between heaven and earth is wearing thin. And then you go back and you go through customs. And they confiscate your can of Stumptown coffee that you forgot to drink. That was very expensive, so I really regret that. Um, but you come back and you're like, whoa, whoa, like... What's just come up? Where is this barrier? Why, why is God not moving in the same way? Or for some reason, it doesn't seem that God's working in the same way. Why is it not so obvious? Why is it not just right there that God's touched someone or healed someone? And again, some people, like the author of this course, may talk about that more with missions trip. But I know for me, it was more visiting Asbury and what God's done there. So we have this desire, right? Based on what we've read and we've seen and for many of us encountered. But there's also this angst of, how do I get people to know? How, how do I communicate this? And I'm going to define angst here as, as they're defining it, because there's a few different definitions. But maybe you can relate to this as, as it goes regarding evangelism, regarding telling people about Jesus. A deep anxiety or dread, typically an unfocused one, a dis-ease, two words, a not, not being at ease about the state of the world or the hu human condition in general. This kind of Malaise. An illustration they give is this. Imagine that your boss at your workplace, or imagine your last workplace, that they're not a Christian, and they call you into your office to deal with something. They say, you know, come and see me tomorrow. We got to talk about this project. And, and over that night, you feel that the Holy Spirit is leading you. Tell this person the gospel. Tell this person about Jesus. Would you feel some angst there? Like, like, yeah, of course I want to tell them the gospel. But also, like, how does this work with the power dynamic of this person being my boss? How can I say it being appropriate? What do I do with work time here, right? 
I know when I worked in ultrasound, there was times when people would want to have these conversations after I'm scanning them. And I'm like, okay, hold on a second. Let me just wrap up the exam. I'm going to go on break now. Yeah, let's talk about Jesus, right? Like, how do, how do we navigate this? There's an angst of how do we do this, especially when we feel the Holy Spirit's calling us to do this in different situations, like our workplaces. So this is a, a cultural angst. So if you felt the Holy Spirit was calling you to do that the next day, you, you might not sleep as, as well as you normally do. Because we have this, first of all, what we call cultural angst, right? We live in 2023 in Canada. We're not quite as secular as Europe, but we're more secular than the States. And so we have this cultural angst, which is present in the Western world, whether you're in America or the States or Europe, that we're in a postmodernist time, really defined by a suspicion that there's any one story about things, right? There's, there's, there's any really true one way that the world is. Suspicion of meta-narratives, right? That there's not a big story that we can all agree on is true. And so if anybody makes a, compl a, a complete claim about understanding reality, that they say, this is the truth, this is the way things are, this is the, something that we have to conform to, people are like, yeah, what kind of power grab are you trying to make here, right? Like, what exactly are you trying to pull? There's a suspicion that if somebody says there's one truth, it's got to have a, have a sketchy reason. It's, it's not going to be reliable. Anything that says that my product is the savior, or this person is the savior, or this leader is the savior, or this God is the savior, immediately we're in a cultural water where people are pretty suspicious of that. And as Christians, like, we have a big story. We believe it's the true story, that our meta-narrative is Jesus is Lord. One person named Charles Taylor says that we live in a culture of disenchantment. The culture says, no, there is no real God, there is no real spiritual thing. And so we've just taken the whole world and said, it's just materialist, it's just what it is. That modern society has cast out faith as playing any real role. And instead of an age of faith now, I really appreciated this observation because I think it's pretty accurate, is that we now live in an age of authenticity, right? Instead of faith, it's all about being your authentic self or the idea of what that means. Here's a quote on that. Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs in morality. The only real being that they must resonate with what we, who we feel we really are. And that the worst thing we can do, again, in modern society, according to the culture around us, we're not talking about Christianity here, we're talking about the culture around us, the worst thing we can do in our culture is conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whatever else. I mean, any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. And the authentic self, right, this idea in our culture of the authentic self, believes that a personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. Like, this is the water we swim in, right? Like, this is, this is all around us. Whether it's advertising or social media or friends, like, this is the water that we swim in. And so faith ends up as a private thing. This idea that, like, yeah, yeah, you can do that for your authentic self, but if it doesn't resonate with me, it's, it's, not, it's not true. And the idea that it could be true is treated with suspicion. And I liked the observation they made in this course, is secular culture doesn't say you can't believe, but it says you can't believe in public. Some lady I know named uh, Connie Jacob part of one of the pastors in Pentecostal assemblies and works in a bunch of different, uh, different settings. 
Um, but when she's talking to people uh, about Jesus, she says, you know, I, you get to be fully you, and speaks to this idea, right, of your unique identity, and you can tell me what you believe, but also I get to be fully me, and I want to tell you what I believe. And I love how she's taken this idea of, you know, our unique identity and the unique self and used it to actually turn it into an opportunity for the gospel. Like, yeah, absolutely. You can tell me what you, what you think, but I get to be fully me as well. And so I want to tell you about the Jesus I serve. And so she's taken that and turned it into an opportunity to share the gospel. I really appreciate that. Um, I was doing this course uh, last week or the week before. And it was about uh, church revitalization in Canada. It was actually being put on by a, a, a district a little bit west of us at, uh, at Alberta. And there's one lady who's been a pastor way up north. And she's, I think she's in the, in the Yukon. And when she was walking around town introducing herself to people, she just asked them, hey, uh, you know, like, do, do you go to church? Do you have a pastor? And they, like, most of them would be like, no, I don't. She's like, oh, well, I'd love to be your pastor. I just moved here. <laughs> I, man, I love that, right? There's an opportunity here as well that you get to be fully you. And that fact that you fully believe that Jesus is Lord can make people consider that claim and take it seriously. But in general, in the culture, the way people think and expect is that faith is a private thing, right? The privatization of faith. It's gone from the center of our culture, this Christendom culture we've had for so long, to the fringe. It's not in the center anymore. It's gone from public to the idea that it should be private. And it's gone from maybe, you know, like people would think Christianity is strange or a little nostalgic, maybe cute, to very often, right, in our culture, Christianity is perceived as a threat. Especially in locations and places where we see how faith has been misused. Of course, a big part of our experience and history here at Algoma, right, is that the residential schools really abused faith and really abused the church and Christianity to try to do things to people and harm them. And that abuse is something where we really have to confront in our particular city and around Ontario that faith is often seen as a threat because it's been used to cause harm. And again, we know the message of Jesus, right? We know who he is and who God is and who God has always been. But we have this cultural tension that our faith is perceived as fringe, it's perceived as private, and it's perceived as a threat. That's the expectation. And so when you bum into people, right, that don't believe, but they're good people, that's also something that we have to deal with, right? That when we go to work, whether it's, you know, the hospital or the clinic or we go to school or we go to hang out with our friends, man, we meet good people who morally are good, but they're not Christians. Or we meet atheists who are incredibly generous, right? We meet Muslims who are so serious about their faith that can really challenge how lukewarm some of us have been. Although, <laughs> several years ago, I was doing campus ministry at the university, and one young guy there, he had been like just like nominally Catholic his whole life, and his Muslim friend was like, yeah, yeah, why do you believe what you believe? And he's like, I don't know. Started reading his Bible, started going to Bethany Baptist Church, <laughs> got saved. <laughs> because his Muslim friend was like, yo, like, are you serious about this? That challenged him to actually come to Christ. But we got to reckon with the fact that people are really serious about their faith more so oftentimes than Christians. And often they're, they're good people. And when it comes up against Christians who are fleshly or disinterested and the things that we can be, we're like, man, like, it's hard to be in a culture where a lot of the good people are not Christian people. And how do we speak the gospel into this? 
the good news. Because in the backdrop of the failures of the church, right, the corruption, the abuse of power, sex scandals, cover-ups, lies, like, man, it is a culturally difficult place. But it's not just the cultural angst, right? Some of us also have, have personal angst. And a few of us were talking about this as we did it in young adults, right? This idea that, like, how can God actually use me? The things that I've done to people, I think John Tyson calls it besetting sins. Like, you have these things that you just, you can't shake them. So how can I tell people about Christ? And, and when we have desires where we do just run after the same thing as all the pagans, like, we have the same vision and ambition. There's this internal angst of, am I really calling people to anything any, any different? We have a fear of opinion of people, right? Like, I don't want to be seen as intolerant. I don't think you do either. I don't want to be seen as judgmental. And we get distracted. Life's busy. New seasons of stuff are out on Netflix, right? (laughs) And we want to tell people about Jesus. But we have an internal angst as well. And so 20 years ago, you'd have questions from people, right? And this is what I trained in 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 Bible college. And honestly, what, what, what still is asked sometimes. These questions about, you know, is the Bible historically reliable? How do you reconcile history, right, with like the flood and creation? And now questions are kind of like, well, what is gender? (laughs) And how do you talk about slavery in the Bible and its misuse? What do we do about the genocidal passages in the Old Testament, right? Like, the questions are tough. So it's easy to have the feeling that you, like, need a seminary degree in order to tell people about Jesus. I have a seminary degree, and I still don't feel prepared a lot of the time to tell people about Jesus. Um, But even as I pursued personally... Um, in, in my story, like, the knowledge and, like, the idea of knowing more and more, it's going to sound simplistic, but the more I realize that, like, the gospel is powerful in and of itself, and God's able to answer people's questions and to lead conversations where we can say, you know what, I'm not sure about that, let me get back to you. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Well, here's a good resource on it, because we don't have to know everything. So we have a desire to see God move. If we're a Christian, if we love God, we just go, this gospel is so good, and Jesus is so good, and I just, I just want you to experience who God is and the power of God. But we have this cultural angst and this personal angst, and that's why we're doing this course called The Missional Life to talk about the different aspects of how do we bring the gospel into every part of our life, and how do we have these spiritual conversations? Because there's hope, right? And the first thing, I love that I bring this up, is our faith does not require a Christian context in order to thrive. It it never has. There's some really useful things under Christendom, where laws were clearly based on Christian morality, or people, you know, had a habit of going to church. Like, there's some good things that are hard to lose. And I think we should be citizens, right, who speak into the laws of our country and our concerned citizens and active. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying we don't want to have involvement of people in faith and the people of faith should have the influence on their culture as salt and light. But our faith doesn't require it in order to thrive. God does not require a Christian Canada in order for the gospel to go forward or for the church to grow. And I've been in those conversations, right? Well, if only stores closed on Sunday, then we would get people back to church. If only this, if only that, if only parents would teach better morality, if only this. But that's not the context into which... God called people to himself. That's not the story of where Jesus was born in the Roman Empire. No, the story of the explosive growth of the early church. And almost every setting of revival has been 
it is not a highly Christian place. It has been the hard and the rocky soil that has been plowed and broken up by people's prayers and tears and a move of God. And God can do big things, can bring the most light where it is dark. Look in the Bible, right, in history. Joseph is sent to a culture far from home, and he rises to influence in the kingdom, right? You have Daniel, you have Nehemiah, you have Esther. These people that God's used through scripture and through history. You know, again, it's wonderful. And it's, we, live, we have such a benefit in Western culture of the influence of the salt and light of Christendom, of the Bible and the scriptures and the influence through the years of Christians and politics. It's wonderful to have that. We benefit from that. We have hospitals because people, and, and, and healthcare in Canada, because people with Christian values said healthcare shouldn't bankrupt you. Like, we benefit from that. We have laws and justice based on the fact that we need to not murder and not steal. But our faith doesn't require that in order to thrive. And God can grow the gospel and save people. So when we're seeing the church grow today at a staggering rate, it's, it's in China, and it's in Iran, and it's in places where it is not friendly to the gospel of Christ. So we can't get into the trap of thinking that the decline of the Western church limits the possibilities, because it's never been limited in God's mind. And it's never limited what God can do in our friends' and our families' lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing is this. We want people to get saved, right? We want people to believe in Jesus, have their lives changed, pass from death to life, absolutely. But we're not the ones to save the world. Jesus is. So we serve the world, not save the world. One of the most helpful passages they bring up on this, this is Jesus' philosophy of mission. This is John chapter 5. So we started in Romans 10, now this is the second passage in John chapter 5. There's this rumor, myth, idea, once in a while they say it happens, scripture says it did happen, that an angel would touch the water once in a while at the pool of Bethsaida. And so Jesus is there, and he's walking around. All these people are there with different severe disabilities, right? And they're waiting just, when the water is stirred, if I can just get into the water, I can be healed. And so Jesus goes around, and here, here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't go, well, I, I see that there's a lot of sickness in the room today. There's a lot of needs. So disciples, could you just form everybody into a line? And in an orderly fashion, I'll just go down and pray for every single person and heal everything. Now, what, what does Jesus do? He finds one person. And later he's questioned, right, by, by, by the Pharisees. Why did you heal on the Sabbath? That's not the right time to heal. And Jesus is speaking about him going and healing this one person, and he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I'm only going to go on mission where God leads me. I'm only going to do what God tells me to do. And in the times where Jesus went to a town and healed all their diseases and all who came to him, he did that. But in this occasion, God was working with one person and had for Jesus that day to heal one man. Jesus always asked, what do I see the Father doing? And said, I only do what I see the Father doing, and I, I want to do that. So a life of mission does not require us meeting every need for every person everywhere, or us telling every person everywhere on planet Earth the gospel. We need to go to the people that God tells us to go to, the people in our lives, the people in our path. That in situations, the Holy Spirit may nudge us in a certain direction. Or we may know somebody well enough that we go, you know, I, I could tell them now. But we get to do what we see the Father doing. It's not on us to save the entire world. Because this messianic idea that we're the ones that have to do it all, 
that, that position of Messiah has already been filled. Jesus already has done that. And now we're his humble servants. I've said before, uh, one of the professors at Tyndale would wake up and he would pray this every morning. And I think it's a really, again, a good prayer in a lot of ways. He would say, Master Jesus, Servant Darren, reporting for duty. That's our attitude, right? That's who Jesus has called us to be, his servants. Because Jesus has come to save the world. And we get to tell people about it as we go where we see the Father leading us. So what's God doing? Where can I join in that? And the third and the final thing is that we rely on God's grace, not our own personal goodness. This is the gospel, the good news. Christ is king, regardless of who I am, regardless of how I've got here. If we had to be fully sanctified and perfect to tell people about Jesus, I mean, like, God's mission would have ground to a halt a long time ago. And God wants us available, which is why God just gives us beautiful pictures all through the scripture of people who are not perfect, but were called and were saved and were used for his purposes. So Abraham was still the father of many nations, even though he was a coward and he lied and he sold his wife out. (laughs) Lots of lying actually going through the Old Testament patriarchs. You have David, right, who's committing murder, who's an adulterer. And still God could have him repent and use him. Paul, who persecuted the early church before he came to do much of the work to establish it. Mary Magdalene, who Jesus drove seven demons out of. This demon-possessed lady turns around and she is the apostle to the apostles and tells them about the risen Christ. If God can do that with somebody, he can certainly use us in our insecurity and our angst and our cowardice and our lies and our besetting sins because it is him who saves us and makes us fit for his use not how much we've learned or how far we've come in our sanctification. We don't have to be perfect. We have to be available. So I want to finish with an encouragement today that as we go through this course, we're going to dig into this is what are some ways that we can remind ourselves of who God is, who his mission is, to be really clear on what God wants us to do and who he wants us to be? And then what are some specific actions that we can take that will help us to tell more people about Jesus and do it in a way that's not marching down the street at the top of our lungs, isn't awkwardly tacking it on to an otherwise delightful conversation. (laughs) But how do we tell people about Jesus who is king? If we have a desire plus angst, that can paralyze us. And I mean, I've seen that happen. That's happened to me a ton. But the good news is that God's desire plus his grace makes us the kind of people he can use. So I just want to close and pray for us. Jared's not going to be... coming up to do worship today because he's teaching the kids downstairs. But I just want to pray that over these next few weeks that the Lord would speak to us by his Holy Spirit. That he'd take that desire that he's put in our hearts, that he'd increase it if it's grown cold in any of us, and that he would use us to be the kind of people that invite and share his love and are the beautiful feet that bring good news. So just bow your heads with me and we'll pray. God, we thank you so much that you have done what needed to be done. It's not us that have to do anything and save people. But you have called us to proclaim that good news. You have called us to be salt and light. You have called us to tell people and proclaim the reign of Jesus and invite people to find their life and forgiveness in you. God, we think right now the people that we know, that we love. And God, we want to tell them. We want to be able to have them understand and have their eyes open and see you and know you and come in a relationship with you. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move. Over these next weeks and months, God, can we speak and act and go 
where we see you already working as our Father. And God, thank you that we don't have to be at any level of this, God. We don't have to be at a certain point. We just have to be available. And God, I pray that you would reward that availability, reward that willingness in each and every heart. If anybody's watching that doesn't know you yet, God, but wants to know you, I pray today, God, that as they invite you in, as they say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. They confess that with their mouth and they believe it in their heart that God's raised you from the dead. God, I pray that they would know that they are saved, that they have passed from death to life and that they can know you forever. God, thank you that you are still saving people and healing people. In Jesus' name, amen.